Doctor's Kitchen. Recipes, health, lifestyle. Reproductive health is declining at 1% per year. So that doesn't sound like very much. 1% per year, 1%, that's not very much. That's what people say about climate change, right? Just one degree, well, who cares? Well, we do, don't we? We care now about that one degree. And we know what it means. And the same thing is true with um, the 1% effect because 1%, you know, over 10 years is 10% and over 50 years is we're cut in half. We're cut at the knees. Welcome to the Doctor's Kitchen podcast. The show about food, lifestyle, medicine, and how to improve your health today. I'm Dr. Rupi, your host. I'm a medical doctor. I study nutrition, and I'm a firm believer in the power of food and lifestyle as medicine. Join me and my expert guests where we discuss the multiple determinants of what allows you to lead your best life. For our children and grandchildren was the dedication at the start of my next guest's book, Countdown, by Dr. Shanna Swan. And since reading the book, I now understand why. Because as a man, I... I'm likely to only have half the number of sperm that my grandfather had, essentially a 50% drop in sperm count over the last four decades. But as you'll hear, this isn't just affecting male fertility. Dr. Shanna Swan, PhD, is one of the world's leading environmental and reproductive epidemiologists, and she is professor of environmental medicine and public health at the ICANN School of Medicine at Mount Sinai in New York where she's also a member of the Transdisciplinary Center on Early Environmental Exposures. And after reading a controversial paper reporting the decline in sperm quality back in 1992 by Carlson and colleagues and being part of a group tasked with ratifying those results, Dr. Swan has gone on to further study this dramatic decline in sperm count across the world. And for over 20 years, Dr. Swan and her colleagues have actually been studying the impact of environmental chemicals and pharmaceuticals on reproductive tract development and neurodevelopment. And her 2017 paper, Temporal Trends in Sperm Count, a Systematic Review and Meta-Regression Analysis, ranked one of the top 30 among all reference scientific papers published in 2017 and really shook the worldwide media with some outlets declaring who is killing our sperm it was a bit of a media storm at the time but it's since diminished and today's podcast is going to be controversial and unpopular but i can't really hide away from the subject matter for fear of scare scaremongering because quite frankly it's something that could actually affect me personally i'm yet to have children myself as dr swan asked me right at the start of this podcast and the data is frankly scary and i'm completely and I, I have no idea. Uh, I've never really thought about pragmatically getting anything checked. Um, and if there are pragmatic decisions to make at an individual level, such as reducing exposure to plastics, petrochemicals and pesticides, those marginal gains are, are, are what people can actually do uh, to actually do something about their fertility rates and increase chances and reduce the risks of any issues associated with reproduction that are becoming more prevalent so 
it's my responsibility to share that with you, the listener as well, and your loved ones. And so today you're going to learn about the 1% effect, the rise in testicular cancer, miscarriages, infertility, as well as the reduction in sperm count in testosterone, endocrine disrupting chemicals, a term that I've always sort of shuddered at because I, I felt that it was in the realm of scaremongering and pseudoscience, but their lack of regulation and the ubiquity of these chemicals in our environment could be in some way affecting our virility. Body burden, I at the time of this recording don't even know where to start when it comes to looking at urine, serum or fat biopsy samples um, to check what body burden actually is at a consumer level, but I'll be doing that after this. Um, whether phthalate and BPA-free actually means anything um, and the disastrous effects that they could be having, not just from a fertility point of view, but from a, a cancer and inflammation point of view as well. What the threshold for these chemicals are and their cumulative impact. Dr. Swan, as you'll hear, um, thinks that there is no uh, acceptable limit and the impact on menopause, erectile dysfunction, virility, what we need to be talking about and campaigning for. At this point, I'm I'm sort of scared and I, I don't really know what we should be doing. Um, as you can tell, this is uh, quite a, a scary topic, but um, it's certainly something that I need to address uh, in a little bit more detail, get more guests on. I've put a whole bunch of links, including Silent Spring, uh, a bunch of books, including Dr. Swan's fantastic book, Countdown, that I recommend everybody read to get some knowledge on the area, as well as a couple of chapters that she's written on pragmatic decisions to limit your chemical burden. And on my newsletter, uh, which you can find at thedoctorskitchen.com, uh, not only will you get a seven-day meal plan, but you also get some more information every single week on what to eat, read, watch, or listen to help you live a healthier, happier life. And you know what? I'm going to be sharing my learnings about reducing chemical burden as I find out more about this myself uh, on this on this journey of, of acquiring knowledge about how to limit chemical exposure on my newsletter uh, as I find out not in a scaremongering way just a few subtle things that hopefully will lead to compound gains over time so I hope you enjoy that but for now this is my conversation with Dr Swan I hope you enjoy the subject we're going to talk about today is going to be super fascinating for people as it was for me so you know what do you want to know about me <laughs> <laughs> what do i want to know about you okay uh so i i read the pod i uh, read the pod i i read the book and um i'll be honest it's definitely one of the scariest books i've read uh it's one of those things that i've been sort of aware of on the periphery but i didn't really want to pay too much attention to because it was very very inconvenient but i think that the prologue to the book and the dedication of the book for our children and grandchildren really did send shivers down my spine so maybe i don't yet don't yet um and i'm going to ask you a personal question I'm just go go you. for it go have you ever had your sperm count tested i have not i haven't okay well maybe after we talk you will do that. Probably. After reading and listening to the book, I 
most likely will. Yeah, absolutely. I can tell your listeners is that this has gotten quite easy now. I can tell you, you can do it from your home. You can send in your companies that you can send in your sample that are reliable. And um, it's, it's just good information. You know, it's like you're learning something about your body and women can't do it. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. You can't, you can't like uh, send in your eggs to be checked or something. <laughs> yeah. 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 Exactly. It's definitely weighed in our favor as a lot of things are, as I read about in the book too. Well, why don't we talk about, about you and your, your background uh, before you got interested in this subject matter, because you're an epidemiologist by training. Is that correct? So yes and no. Um, my first degree was in mathematics. All right. My second, my second degree <clears throat> is in biostatistics. Um, but my third degree is in mathematical statistics, which is also mathematics because it was probability theory. So really, my my initial training was quite theoretical. It was mm. you know, and um, but um, my first job of any extent had to do with health applying statistics in a health setting and that was um, working for kaiser division of research and looking at the question of whether the oral contraceptive how the oral contraceptive changed women's bodies pretty profound study um, mm. and it got me very interested in the subject matter beyond the statistics um, you know, so we're looking at women who are putting chemicals into their body, chemicals that are hormonally active, obviously designed to be so. And what effects did that have on their body? After working there for several years, I was kind of, you know, in the track, in the chute to go down the road to epidemiology and public health. And that's what I did. I worked for 17 years in the Department of Health Services, in California. Um, I'm a very, if you will, socially conscious person. So I always wanted to do things that uh, impacted people and, mm. and their well-being. And so this seemed a good way to do that. And um, and so I, I did that happily, um, sort of the first major part of my career. Um, and until I learned about endocrine disruptors. And that was through my um, participation in a committee of the National Academy of Sciences. And they were looking at this newly defined term, endocrine disruptors, which was committee was formed back in 95, I think. 95. And, um, so at that time, I, I didn't know what an endocrine disruptor was. Most people had never heard of this. Mm. Um, and, and then the committee was um, asked to consider a study that had come out of Denmark and that study published in 92 said that sperm count had declined 50% in the prior 50 years. I don't know if you're familiar with that study. It's kind of a, it's the landmark study in this field, I would say prior that, to yeah. our 2017 study, which was- Is that the uh, Carlson paper, 92? Exactly, exactly. Gotcha. Right. So the committee asked me whether they should consider that study as a statistician, what did I, think of it. And to be honest, I was not convinced. For a number of reasons. One is, they didn't seem to consider 
the possibility that changing methods or changing populations could have produced this decline. In other words, they didn't consider um, things we call biases and confounders that might have produced an artificial decline, which mm. was actually not temporal, but due to other changes, right? So I had the opportunity to look into this and I committed six months to doing that. And that's what I did. And so over the next six months, I got all the 61 studies that had gone into that. And I selected from them all the factors that could possibly explain the decline. So how the sample was tested, how men were recruited, what their ages were, whether they smoked, whether they were obese, and whether it was an occupational study, was it, uh, you know, and so on and so forth. Mm. And um, I and two colleagues at the health department put this in a large model, not yet called a meta-analysis, by the way, this is a reanalysis of a I don't know what to call the Carlson paper, certainly not a meta-analysis, but it was it's a prototype of a meta-analysis. It was before meta-analysis was defined really, right? Right, okay. Um, yeah. And yeah. um and so we ran this model really not knowing what we would find. And to our surprise, nothing changed. Oh, it was wow. exactly what Carlson had published. The slope to the first decimal place was the same. Wow. So this was a this was my first wake-up call that there was a problem with declining sperm count. So let me stop there. And, and that kind of gives you that back history and then we can go, go forward. For sure, yeah. So that was sort of the first warning sign that there was a genuine decline that needed to be investigated further. And I, I guess the next 20 years of your career has been spent trying to figure out why, what the evidence is, what could be causing this. And your paper, I mean, you've done multiple uh, publications, but the one in 2017 really caused these like incredible shock headlines. I think I remember reading something from the BBC uh, about, you know, who's killing our sperm, like, you know, the human race is going to be extinct in the next 50 years. You know, you're responsible for that, right? Or you and your colleagues. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we did our best to... <laughs> get attention to that. But um, I, unlike the book, by the way, which we worked pretty hard to get distributed and noticed, that 2017 paper, we didn't do anything. That was just uh -huh. picked up by the media. We we never had even a press conference. Um, mm -hmm. But the there's I don't know if you're familiar with Altmetrics. It's a it's a metric system that looks at the how many times a paper is accessioned and referenced and so on and so forth. And of all the papers published in 2017 in the world, ours was the 26th. Wow. So, <laughs> you know, it's all, you can almost say it was the, certainly one of the top papers for the whole year. So, gotcha. so it was big. And one of the consequences was that an agent called me, a literary agent. And she said, would you like to write a book about this? Again, my first reaction was negative because, <laughs> first of all, you've written a book, so you know what's involved. Yeah, yeah. I didn't know what I was getting into, actually. But um, uh, here's what I thought. Look, I've written about this for 20 years, right? 
I've spoken about this to countless audiences, all scientific or possibly governmental, um, very few to the general public, but I've certainly spoken about it. I've written about it. I've written over 200 papers. So haven't I kind of done this? And she convinced me that the reach would be different. The megaphone, if you will, would yeah. be different. And as something you know, as a podcaster and an author, you know, you do reach a different audience than a scientific audience. So you and I share a lot because we're both in some sense academicians and we're both in the health field and we both have both reached out to the public in a untraditional way, I would say, for academicians and also the academic route. So, so you understand what I'm talking about. So it's a way to um, uh, go beyond the, well, certainly the ivory tower, that's kind of a cliche, but the, you know, the limited um, range of your mm -hmm. voice in an academic setting. Um, and I must say, I'm learning more and more that through social media and through talking to people who are understand how to impact people through social media, that, and particularly today, people are not necessarily convinced by science. It's a that's a hard thing for me as a scientist to say. Would you agree? I th I would agree. Um, I think science has a bit of a branding problem and a, a, a communication problem as well. Because whilst your study can be the most robust and um, the 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 best peer reviewed and the top ranked, you know, in Alteryx and and other sort of means of of getting the the literature out there to scientific colleagues it wouldn't touch the average person on the street. And that's generally who you need to try and influence if you want to enact change. And that's why, you know, I commend you uh, writing the book because it's it's for the, the lay audience who actually need to know this more than anyone. Right. And I have to say that my agent's suggestion that I get a writer, someone to write with me, and that I was so lucky to find Stacy. Wow. Colino, um, because it's her, it's really her voice. So have you ever written collaboratively? I don't know if you've done that. I haven't re written collaboratively. I've written my all my own work. But um, I, I guess sort of my experience is slightly different because I've come at writing through the sort of root of, of being a general practitioner. So I have conversations with people all day, every day, where I explain the side effects of medications, the implications if they don't change their lifestyle, trying to, you know, uh, debunk myths and that kind of stuff to someone who doesn't come from a scientific background. So I think my writing sort of kind of flowed out of that and, and also through the podcast medium as well. Whereas I think if you've come from core academia where you're used to, you know, conversing with your esteemed colleagues, it's a very different endeavor to go into sort of public writing. Right. So, so Stacy and I together crafted this and, and it was very much a team effort and, and she would say, well, tell me the science about this question, you know, and then I'd talk about it and she'd take notes and then she said, I think I can use that. And then she would rewrite it and send it back to me. And then gotcha. we would, you know, and that, that was the process. And um, I highly commend it to anybody who, you know, hasn't had your experience of, of talking to people on the street, if you will. Um, and it was certainly what, you know, taught me a lot how to talk to, to people. And now since the book came out, 
I have to tell you, Ruby, I have been talking to people three, four, five, six times a day. Wow. Since February. <laughs> it's absolutely extraordinary. The interest and 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 then on um you know Instagram Live or you know chats or you know open discussions where people can jump in. They're so engaged. They're so interested that it really makes me feel like this is the way we have to get our health messages out. This is Definitely. this is what, this is the way. No, I think I agree. All scientists should should be taught about communication skills because there's no point just sitting in the, in a lab or you know conversing with colleagues unless you, that science is actually going to have an impact in the real world. So. You know, uh, yeah, I think more people need to do what you're doing. How, how are you enjoying the kind of social media world? Are, are you finding it largely positive or? I, I have to confess that I have a helper. Okay. Okay. <laughs> and um, that's Emily Copeland. And she is um, a buffer for me. So, you know, there may be stuff that I wouldn't like to see, I think, <laughs> maybe. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, not too much, I think, but but um, she is at, like stands between and she sends me things. She said, would you like to, you know, um, support this? Do you want to make a comment on this? Do you want? So she helps me, uh, you know, Never deal with that. Yeah. Um, I'm learning, but it's not a space that I'm, you know, familiar with. For sure. so, I'm, I'm gradually learning. How about you? Do you like it? I I, I do like it. I, I've been it. I've been in it now for over five years. I'm sort of used to the platforms. Uh, it's very easy to get social media fatigue, which is why it's probably nice uh, and important to have a buffer because uh, you can spread yourself too thin. Um, but you know, my favorite medium is definitely podcasting because you can have a much more nuanced conversation. And I guess Instagram Live also gives you that opportunity as well because. This is a very complicated topic as we're, as we're going to get into it. You know, um, the thoughts that we won't have the ability to reproduce naturally much longer is very contentious and it's scary, frankly. Um, wh- why don't we talk about that? So, so what is the, the 1% effect? You've mentioned this in, in the book. What, what, is, what is that exactly for the listener? So when I, when I saw the... Um First of all, the rate of decline of sperm count from our 2017 study, um, just to go over the numbers, the samples were collected between 2011, 20, sorry, 1973 and 2011, right? 39 years, say 40 years. Um, and in that time, sperm median, mean, sorry, mean sperm count um, dropped from um well it dropped 52 percent so 52%. that's 52 percent 52 percent cut in half and and that's about one percent per year right yeah yeah 50 percent in 40 years just a little okay so that's the rate at which it's going down and then and we'll go back to what that number refers to by the way it's not the whole world okay mm. so then if we go to fertility data, which anybody can do, you, I recommend it to you, you go, just put in Google World Bank fertility data, you get a very nice interactive map. Mm-hmm. And that map tells you 
the number of children born per woman or couple. And you can query it by year, by time, and so on. And what you see is that that number dropped between 1960 and 2019 by 50%, which is, again, 1% per year. Mm. And by the way, that is actually true pretty much everywhere. You know, people have this image that, well, in the poorer countries um, where people have a lot of children, fertility is not declining. That is not true. If you go into that map and you put in any, say, African country, you'll see the decline is actually steeper there. Wow. So, um, so anyway, 1% per year of fertility decline. Um, and then if you look at a very important driver, I feel, of this, which is testosterone, um, there are fewer studies. But there are a number of studies that have looked at testosterone pretty carefully over time. And those studies demonstrate a decline in adult male testosterone of about 1% per year. And then if you turn to the woman and look at the miscarriage rate, mm -hmm. again, no meta-analysis, much fewer data. However, where it's available, and we talk about that in detail in the book, where it's available, um, it's going up at about 1% per year. And then there are other related factors such as testicular cancer, male genital birth defects, premature ovarian failure, um, erectile dysfunction increasing mm. in young men and so on. So if you look at how fast these things are changing, they're all, they're nothing that's going like five times as fast or half as fast. They're all in the same, I would say, order of magnitude. And so what I say overall summarizing this is that reproductive health is declining at 1% per year. So that doesn't sound like very much, 1% per year, 1%, that's not very much. That's what people say about climate change, right? Just one degree, well, who cares? Well, we do, don't we? We care now about that one degree and we know what it means. And the same thing is true with um, the 1% effect because 1%, you know, over 10 years is 10% and over 50 years is we're cut in half. We're cut at the knees, right? Yeah. And, and, and um, so yeah, that's the 1% effect. <laughs> wow. Okay. So 1% a year. So, so j just to clarify, when it comes to the prevalence of miscarriages, that's increasing as well over the same time period by about 1% a year. Okay. Wow. All right. So by the time, so I, I qualified as a doctor over 12 years ago, I went to medical school over 15 years ago. So in that time period, miscarriages have increased by 1% per year over that, over that time period. So when I started, the prevalence of miscarriage would have been much lower, considerably lower than what it is today when I, when I see now, Ruby, there's a there's a qualifier here for miscarriage. Mm. As you know, as a clinician, miscarriage is a little bit of a tricky endpoint, right? Yeah. What is a miscarriage? You know, so do you require that the woman had a, um, you know, a clinically diagnosed pregnancy that she then lost? That number will be lower than if you have self-reported miscarriage or you have women coming in saying. I had a late bleed and I think I had a miscarriage and it's much less 
then the really best studies, one of which I did, which is you get urine every day, you've tested for HCG, mm. HCG goes up, the woman's pregnant, HCG goes down, she's had a loss. Mm. Okay, are you familiar with those studies? Yeah, yeah, I know yeah. I haven't looked at those studies myself, but uh, I'm familiar about with the terminology. So there, it's so. called early pregnancy loss, non-clinical loss, subclinical loss, and those occur much, much more frequently, like mm. 30, 35% of all pregnancies end without a woman knowing about it. Mm. Mm. Yeah, okay, so um, that's, it makes it really tricky when you look at these trends. It's not like sperm count where you have measured levels by methods that remain constant. Miscarriage is much trickier, right? Yeah, that is tricky. And so I'm just pointing out that the, the quality of the data, um, testosterone levels, pretty, pretty stable. You know, I mean, pretty easy to measure in a stable way, methods remaining stable. So you can say these have gone up. So whenever we talk at tr about trends, we have to talk about how are we determining that and in whom, right? Mm. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. So who's coming? Come and report. You know, a lot entire populations would never, maybe, notice that they've missed a period or that they won't participate in these studies. So we have, a, you know, there's a lot of epidemiological questions here. But I think I'm speaking broad in broad brush, if you will, one yeah. person. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think this is a really important qualifier for that. Um, but everything else, I mean, it sounds uh, again very scary because if you extrapolate that, then that's where you get the genuine fear that we would lose the ability to re reproduce, uh, um, uh, reproduce. Uh, is this something that we see in animals and other species as well? Yes. So um, we haven't talked about causes of these changes. Mm. But let me just fast forward and say, it is the opinion of me and others working in the field that we are exposed to chemicals that are playing a large role in this and non-human species are exposed to these same chemicals because they're in the environment and we see in many of these species declines in many of the same endpoints that we see so we see um for example alligators with smaller litter sizes we see alligators by the way with smaller genitals which we also see in humans. We'll talk about that later, I think. Yeah, we yeah. see um, uh, frogs with um, disturbances of their genital organs, which is related to their pesticides. And we see endangerment, right? And in some species extinction. So there's, there's no question that um, chemicals play a role in non-human species, and in my opinion, in humans as well for these declines when it comes to we'll talk about the the chemical the array of different chemicals that could be responsible for this effect that we're seeing this phenomena um do we know to the proportion to which it might be related to what we've done to the environment versus the other lifestyle factors i.e diet smoking obesity uh foods that we've now developed a taste for versus what we would have traditionally been eating? That's, um, it's really hard to separate those out. Okay. Mm. Uh, I would say that lifestyle factors, as you described, are definitely important. And I would say that probably 
in adults, they are the most important drivers. So, however, I don't think they're the most important drivers in our lifetime, because I think what's happening, which is most influential, is what the fetus is exposed to in utero. And there, both sides of the equation, if you will, are important. Um, let me give you one piece of data, which comes from two Danish studies, if you, or three actually. Um, so smoking, lifestyle factor. Okay. So in this Danish study, mothers who smoked while they were pregnant had sons who had a 40% reduction in sperm count as adults. Now, how could that be? They're smoking in this, this little creature in their body. There's no sperm. There's not even perhaps a organ, genital organs. Well, that smoking affects the germ cells, right? The spermatogonia that will go on to later produce the sperm that the man has when he's an adult. And if those are adversely impacted by smoking, that's damage that is irreversible. Mm. So he will have this reduction, probably not fixable at all. We, unless there's some magic bullet, you know, now in science biology, we're getting a lot of magic bullets, right? The vaccines and CRISPR yeah. and so on, who knows, but I can't say that there won't ever be, but I don't know now of anything that could fix that. However, if the man smokes, so he wasn't exposed prenatally, he takes up smoking as an adult, his sperm count is also reduced, but it's much less of a reduction, 20% versus 40%. And if he stops smoking, he recovers. So they're quite different impacts. The good news is if you're doing something to your body that's you know, impairing your reproductive function, you can actually turn that around. And that's really positive for people. And, and that's one of the reasons I suggest to men that they get their sperm tested because maybe before they wanna to try to have a child and it's not great, well, they can look into these things. Are these binge drinking occasionally? Are they smoking? Are they exposed to, you know, ambient cigarette smoke? Are they stressed? Can they reduce their stress? Can they change their diet? We can talk mm. about all those things. Yeah, but there are definitely things that people can do to improve their reproductive function when the exposure occurs as an adult. However, if it occurs in utero, as I said, there's nothing that I know of that can be done about it. Right. So, so, and by the way, it's not just smoking in utero, it could be exposure to these endocrine disrupting chemicals we're going to talk about. It could be diet, it could be stress. There's all these things that also affect reproductive function and, and development in utero. Yeah. So the exposure in utero derived from those, those studies is a lot more important than the lifestyle factors given that the exposure is the same, in this case, cigarette smoking, let's say. Um, and one is reversible, one is not reversible at this point in time. Um, do we know about the effect of, let's take cigarette smoking in this example, uh, on female fertility, if the, the child was female and, and female smoking? Yes. Um, so we know um, that smoking affects risk of miscarriage, it affects the risk of becoming pregnant, um, time to pregnancy, 
Um, it affects um, probably, although I don't have those data in my head right now, probably the success of an ART procedure. That's another thing we haven't talked about, but all of these chemicals affect success of artificial reproductive technology. So in vitro, ICSI, and for, there's a really elegant study, which has been going on for quite a while at Harvard. It's called the Earth Study. And in that study, they, um, and you might want to talk to the person who runs that. His name is Russ Hauser. He's a okay. clinician. Yeah. Um, and, and what they do is they measure the body burden of the man and the woman at the time they come in for assisted reproduction. And then they link the exposure that they measure in the urine and blood to the success of the procedure. Ah, interesting. And they published quite a bit on this, showing that what you have in your body. So, so another sort of take home here is that if a couple is going to go through these procedures, it really would behoove them to get tested, to find out what their body burdens are, to talk to people about how to lessen those, right? To get yeah. counseling on that, and then improve their chances of succeeding. This is a expensive and very expensive and mm. difficult and painful sometimes procedure that people you know want to maximize their chances so you know that that's a really good take-home message there yeah. so there's a lot of intervention points what i haven't talked about is that the father so the father um you know but your listeners might not know or remember that <clears throat> sperm are being produced all the time and it takes about 70 days to produce a sperm. So in that 70 days, that's prior to ejaculation, right? Um, the man is smoking, that's going to affect that sperm. Mm -hmm. The man is binge drinking, the man is exposed to phthalates, the man is exposed to BPA, whatever. He is adversely affecting that sperm and that sperm will have an effect on the fetus. Now, I told you about the mother smoking during pregnancy and the son's sperm count. It's also true that if the man smokes in that window, his son has a 40% lower sperm count. So it's comparable to the effect. Right. Okay. So, you know, there's a lot of care that has to be taken, you know, and if you, and a lot of couples, you know, they're not sure when they're going to conceive 50% mm. of pregnancies are unplanned. So, if you think you could be getting pregnant, either not using contraception, you know, or whatever, then you've got to kind of have in your back of your mind, okay, any day now I could get pregnant mm. and what I'm doing right now in terms of my lifestyle and in terms of chemicals I'm letting in on my body could affect my fetus. And by the way, that fetus's offspring, so, oh, right. Okay. Yeah, yeah. 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 Right. Because for example, you're carrying a boy, that boy has inside him, those germ cells that will produce the next generation sperm. They are also being exposed. Mm. Yeah, so, yeah. you know, that's why the book is dedicated to our children and grandchildren. Maybe we should have said great grandchildren. <laughs> 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 because um, um, Pat Hunt has shown University of Washington, wonderful study in animals, you know, how, what she did, this is what she did, elegant study, take a rat, I think she used mice, take a mouse, expose it 
to an estrogenic compound, then that rat's or mouse's offspring is again exposed to the estrogenic compound and the grandchild, and she sees a cumulative effect. It just gets worse and reproductive function declines. And that I think is what's happening to us. That's why sperm count continues to drop. That's why it doesn't reset each generation. Yeah, I think, you know, the theme of certainly that I got, um, the impression I got from the first part of the book was about how this is an equal uh, responsibility. And I think historically it's been the, uh, the onus has been on the female partner to, um, to you know, uh, to sort out fertility issues. And just to underscore, you know, that 70-day period for men in particular, but also their lifestyle factors up to that point, certainly have an effect on fertility. We, we've talked about that on a previous podcast episode with a good friend of mine, actually, uh, about optimizing fertility using lifestyle to that point. Um, I think we should probably define what we mean by endocrine disrupting chemicals because um, we refer to them quite a few times to this point at the moment. What, what, is the, what is the definition of them? Yeah, so um, a, a, an endocrine disrupting chemical is a chemical usually but not exclusively man-made which can masquerade as one of the body's many, actually up to 100 hormones. We don't know all the hormones that are imitated by chemicals, but we know of many. So, for example, um, if your body is looking out for uh, a molecule of testosterone, it, it might have a receptor for that molecule. It's open, it's waiting for that testosterone. And then you are exposed to a phthalate. We can talk about what that is, but they're plasticizers that make, for example, bottle soft. And um, and then that goes into your body and into your bloodstream. And then that receptor is sitting there waiting for your body's own testosterone. And this phthalate lookalike mimic, if you will, takes its place. And then the body says, okay, I'm good to go. I don't make, need to make any more of that. Right. Very simplistically, what it does is it, um, it they're impositors. Mm -hmm. They're imposters that um, come in very silently, very sneakily. You know, we don't know what's in our bodies. <laughs> and, and I can tell you if we measured our urine right now, we, you and I both would have many, many hormones, uh, mimics in our body. Yeah, I mean, you're living, you're in New York at the moment. I'm in the center of London. So it's uh, highly likely. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> but they've also been found in the Arctic Circle in oh, the bodies wow. of animals. And they've also been found very deep in the ocean, even to the bottom of the Marianas Trench. So there wow. is nowhere on earth that they don't go. I'll just tell you that nowhere on earth that they don't go. Wow. Okay, so anyway, so so these are one way to think about them as hormone mimics. That, I think that's a simple way to think about them. Um, the name is kind of complicated, endocrine disrupting chemicals. Endocrine means hormone, the endocrine system, endocrinology, and so on. So um, most people don't think about en their endocrine system, but they might think about their hormones. Certainly 
many think about their testosterone um, and and women think about their hormones of pregnancy of a menstrual cycle so so i think people are familiar with hormones. and and one really simple way to think about endocrine disruption is to think about the oral contraceptive mm. it's not it's not an environmental chemical unless it's dumped into the water by the way so it is uh, through our urine but um these are things we take specifically to disrupt our hormones that's why we take them right mm -hmm. so um you know the sort of proof that we you know we use these we know these and but what we didn't know for a long time um what really not i think clearly until about 2000 um a little earlier i think our stolen future which is an excellent book that I recommend to you and your listeners, um, told a lot, you know, the start of the story, the history of mm. the story. And, and, um, and then about 2000, we started measuring them in everybody's bodies and, and, you know, being able to quantify it and do these studies. So, um, yeah, so they're everywhere and they're, they come in many forms. Um, and those have to do with the function of the chemical, how it's used, what it does you know, in terms of its um, use to society, if you will, mm. it's nice to have a hard water bottle, right? You need BPA for that, yeah. or BPF or BPS. It's nice to have um, soft, flexible tubing, for example, you know, in the hospital, it's used mm. all over the hospital. Yeah. And yeah. Patients are all the time getting phthalates through these tubing, by the way, just <laughs> including newborn babies. Um, and, um, so the, yes, it's nice to have it. They have a function and they also convey harm. So we have to balance, they have to balance the pluses and minus. I'll give you a very example, a good example of that. So I, I said they're in the hospital, mm -hmm. um, they're in tubing, they're in IV tubing, they're in dialysis tubing, they're in NICU tubing and so on. All right, so hospitals have started to take them out, which is great. Remove phthalates from your hospital tubing. So, fantastic important campaign however it turns out that blood bags blood bags can't take out phthalates and you know why why is that it prolongs the life and it prevents coagulation ah. so they've not found yet a substitute and that's what i mean about risk and balance you, you know if yeah. you really need this chemical which you yeah. certainly do in a blood bag mm. you got to take the balance it you know and say okay we're giving this exposure but we're providing this absolutely life-saving, you know what I mean? So, so I think I wouldn't universally say, take it all out. I think you have to look at the function, how it's used, whether it's needed for that function, where there's a substitute which would perform as well, which is not hormonally active. And that's mm. the work we have cut out for us now. You, you mentioned a term called body burden at the start. Um, and I, and I'm, I'm guessing that's re referring to the concentration of chemicals that we can measure in the urine, let's say. Um, and I'm guessing that your body burden only gets to a critical level when you're having multiple exposure of all these different chemicals from various parts. So we're skipping forward a little bit, but I, I'm assuming there's a way to reduce said body burden with some pragmatic decisions to make that you can do at an individual level as well as a yeah at a societal level and um by the way you can measure those things in your urine if they're water soluble 
Right. right. Okay. You can measure them in your serum if they're fat soluble or in your fat if they're persistent. That's much harder to get a mm. fat sample than a urine sample. Right? So, so looking at levels in fat is pretty tricky, but you can pretty easily get serum and you can very easily get urine. So yeah, in terms of reducing your body burdens, um, I recommend to you a book called Slow Death by Rubber Duck. It sounds uh, uplifting. <laughs> <laughs> so these are, uh, Slow Death by Rubber Duck was written by two Canadian environmentalists. And what they did was they said, we're gonna see how much this these chemicals matter for us. And they set up this experiment on themselves. And what they did was they created a little lab in one of their homes. And there was a room that they got squeaky clean. And how might you do that? Well, you would remove any plastic from it. You would remove certainly no air fresheners, which convey phthalate exposure. You want to have nothing covering the furniture or the floor that could have flame retardants in it and so on and so forth. So they, they cleaned up their environment and then they cleaned up what they took in their bodies. So the foods they ate were organic and they were not wrapped in plastic and they were not heated in plastic and, and so on. And they were not in tin cans and they were not in, you know, so they went through all these ways that things could come into their bodies and they measured their body burden, that is the levels of these, total levels of these chemicals in their body before they started the experiment, after the experiment, and then they reloaded and did it again. And so what they showed is that, yes, you can lower your body burden. And they did it and they showed it. So I, I think that's pretty convincing. Uh, not everyone can do everything, but um, it, it can, encourage people to to start and to try and to re reduce yeah there are some pragmatic decisions that you can make i i guess um w w was it reduced by a significant amount and do we do we know what the threshold is uh such that we can see oh we don't mm. no you're shaking your head <laughs> <laughs> thresholds are really tricky for these mm. chemicals um but but let me say there were some for example, diethyl phthalate um, was one that went down a lot. And diethyl phthalate is a phthalate that's uh, contained in anything fragranced. Okay, so this is phthalate spelled P-T-H-A-L-A-T-S. Okay, P-T-H-O, right. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So anything with a fragrance, you know, whether it's a room freshener or you hang it in your car, you put it in your on your skin through personal care products you, in your laundry soap and you know you're going to get a lot of phthalates so you know we asked women in our studies you know i do study pregnant women and we ask them a lot of questions of what they're how what they're doing we asked them what products they put on their body and were they fragranced and the women that use fragrance products had much higher levels of several phthalates dibutyl phthalate diethyl phthalate so um, those are the things that were easiest to knock down in this experiment mm. of, of, of Rick Smith. So what's really surprising, I don't know how much endocrinology you studied in your medical practice, but... Uh, basic, but I understand about ne negative feedback and all that kind of jazz. 
<laughs> you know, in, in the endocrine system, the endocrine system is tuned to, to be sensitive to extremely low doses, right? Very, very small changes in hormones can have big effects. Mm. And it's unlike a lot of other um, agents coming into our bodies or in, in influencing us, this very low dose effect. And so it, we think now through a series of many, many studies that there is no threshold. You know, for example, lead, lead and lead poisoning mm. and IQ, no threshold. Mm. Um, so definitely we want to reduce these things. Definitely we can't completely eliminate them and we can just do the best we can, but there's no level at which there's not going to be maybe not measurable change, maybe some small change that doesn't matter that our body adapts to. But, and besides no threshold, there's this mixture question. So as a physician, if you're prescribing a drug to a patient, a new drug, you'll probably say, what else are you taking, right? Mm. And you ask that because all of the medications that this patient is taking have to be considered together. There could be bad interactions, there could, right? So um, the same thing is true of these chemicals. And because we're exposed to so many different ones, CDC measures over 100 in their random samples, tracking, you know, tracking samples. Um, and they're mostly in everybody. So right now, you've probably got 100 chemi endocrine disrupting chemicals in your body. Just, you know, at some level, maybe not doing any harm, maybe doing harm. So if you just study one of them at a time, you're not getting the full impact, just like you wouldn't for a medication. I'm certainly of the opinion, as I'm sure you are as well, where we should treat particularly manufactured chemicals as guilty until proven otherwise. It's like the pragmatic decision to make. Considering BPA as an example, which is now universally banned, I think, in a lot of EU countries, um, and it took a number of years before that was fashioned out. But what I hear and what I see on packaging is BPA-free, but they're just putting a different version, which might be as harmful, if not more, in those products. So, I mean, first of all, what do we need BPA for? Is it something that changes the characteristic of a, of a plastic? Yes, it makes it hard. It gives it, like for a tin can, it will give you this hard coating on the lining of the can. Uh, it gives you a coating on paper that allows you to print on it. So you have these cash register receipts, right? Ah, um, it yeah. gives you coatings on your teeth. It, it was used to be used for line you know for treatment of teeth um so it's a hard coating and you know a different um i'm glad you mentioned the substitution and i think that's um for bpa it's also true for for the phthalates by the way so mm. we we saw the phthalate the levels of <clears throat> diethyl hexyl phthalate big mouthful it's a big chemical by the way it has a lot of you know um molecules in it uh large chemical and um it was it was is probably the one of the most anti-androgenic of the phthalates so it's the strong worst actor in the story that i've studied a lot and um and so it we saw that between our 
the cohort we recruited in 2000 and the cohort we recruited in 2010, there was a 50% drop in, in this valley in the women's bodies. So that was fabulous, right? And mm. then we later found out that other phthalates, which we were no, not measuring yet because they were so recent, like diisononal phthalate and, and other ones were then substituted and they caused the same harms. So that we call that regrettable substitution. And that's a, it's a, <laughs> it's, regrettable. A, it's a real con on the public, isn't it? Because you read, you buy this bottle, BPA free. Okay. I feel like I'm good to go. That's fine. And, and then you can't, uh, <laughs> you yeah. can't know that you're getting the same thing in another name. Yeah. I mean, I'm just, I'm trying to fashion like what the listener's thinking. It was like, okay, all right, I can't get fragrances. I can't buy stuff in plastic. I can't, certainly can't heat anything in plastic. I can't buy my tin cans. I can't, there's so many elements. I mean, for the, for the biggest win, let's say, in terms of reducing your body burden, what are the key things you, you suggest that we should immediately do right now to have the, the biggest impact, basically? A little time, wouldn't take too much to walk through your kitchen and try, just get rid of plastics to the extent you can. They're not equally bad. So you might want to think about the fact that, in, you know, there's recycling codes in the bottom of the bottle mm -hmm. and, and um, you want to avoid three, six, and seven. Okay. Three, six, okay. and seven. Yeah. So if, if they say one and two, which many of them do, <clears throat> that's not too bad. Um, so, Personally, I would prefer not to buy anything in plastic if I can help it, but it's very difficult. It's very, very difficult. So, so when you buy food, I would suggest that you, you can remove it from its plastic container. You can put it in um, some glass, you know, so glass, ceramic, metal, silicon, it's fine. Mm -hmm. um, and so that's, that's kind of an audit. You could do an audit of your kitchen space um, then, um, the other thing you want to look for in your kitchen is nonstick. So nonstick, you know, Teflon mm -hmm. implements, pans, cast iron is really easy and cheap, by the way, much cheaper than Teflon lines, uh, cooking utensils. It's heavy. It heats well. It doesn't have any toxic effects that we know about. <laughs> so, mm -hmm. you know, uh, I would get rid of Teflon in any of your cooking products. So the kitchen is a really big place. Um, the bathroom is a big place too. So um, like I said, fragrance, try to avoid fragrance. Um, you can go to a couple of websites. You can go to Silent Spring. You can go to Environmental Working Group. Um, there may be some in England that I don't know about where you can put the name of your product in and it will tell you how it ranks or, you know, in the toxicity scale and, and try to um, not use the worst rank products. Yeah. Um, so, so, so phthalates, you know, I told you they make plastic soft. They also hold the scent and the color. So, uh -huh. and they increase absorption. So they're put into creams because it helps it go into your body and they're put into cosmetics because it holds the color and it, and it's put into fragrances because it holds the scent. So if you look at the function of these things and you can see where they're used, that's hard for an ordinary person. And by the way, um, these 
things I'm suggesting are, you know, not everybody can afford them, mm. right? And and so there's is there really is a environmental justice question here about you yeah. know who can really shop their way out of this mm-hmm. or who can who who is less exposed, you know, yeah. depending on where they live and the quality of their air and and, and so on. Um, so those are some simple things, but. I'm going to have to put a plug in for my book countdown because in countdown, we go to two for two chapters. We talk about things people can do. So that would be, you know, one way if you want to really, you know, become more expert on this, you can read the book. It's an easy read and, and it's not expensive and can get it on paperback paperback coming in February, but now you can sure. get it. On. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, I, I, I love those sections. I think they're really, really useful for people. Um, and I think the whole sort of, premise of you talking about this quite openly because I'm I'm sure you've received a lot of criticism and skepticism from your, your colleagues throughout this whole journey maybe not right now but certainly throughout this whole process right yes <laughs> <laughs> I mean not 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 really from my colleagues so much as from um spokespeople for chemical companies ah yeah yeah yeah, yeah. um I I there's there's pretty good agreement. I mean, like the Endocrine Society, which is a very big, powerful scientific society, um, has come out with strong statements about the danger of endocrine disruption for wow. uh, reproductive development and for endocrine development and so on. So, uh, you know, you go look at the Endocrine Society and look at their statements. They're very good. The um, ACOG, the uh, American College of... Um, uh, gynecologist has also come out. So, so clinicians are by and large supportive of what I'm saying. Mm-hmm. One problem is that it hasn't made down to the test, right? So because these questions are not on the test licensing, mm-hmm. right? Then it's not taught. And as you know, from going through medical school, you know that you study what's going to be on the test, right? <laughs> And so yeah. what's taught and what people study is, is, is very directed to that. And so our work, and you can help if you, know, if you want to do that, is to think about how to get this information taught to medical students and to residents, because I'm convinced that that's the way people are going to change. If their doctor says, let's take a minute and let me ask you a few questions. Right now, there's no environmental questioning. You don't ask people what they're exposed to. You might ask about lead paint, maybe, maybe. Um, you might ask about some other risky things in the house, but but basically you're not going to say, do you use Teflon pans? Do you microwave in plastic? Do you, you know? So, well, I, 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 exactly. Yeah. And I think the other side to this is uh, the change uh, in the food landscape and the um, fast moving consumer good landscape is going to be consumer driven as well. So when you talk about this as, as, it, as it impacts, you know, menopause, erectile dysfunction, fertility, in both male and female uh, counterparts, testosterone levels, you know, that's where people sort of start listening. And you've talked about the impact on the menopause, right? In in terms of the uh, EDCs and and other, yeah. Mm. Early menopause. and, and, And just a few weeks ago, there was a brilliant study out of Sweden where they actually measured levels of environmental chemicals in the 
bodies of women in the tissue. They did that because these were women undergoing cesarean section. And they showed that that was related to the quality and the number of eggs that women had left and showed that higher levels associated with poorer eggs and fewer eggs. So um, as I say, women are harder to study because their organs are not visible. Mm. Um, and, uh, but um, that kind of study, the study I told you, the earth study where people going, you know, undergoing assisted reproduction, those chemicals directly related to their, to their um, function you know, their ability to, to conceive. Yeah. Yeah. And another thing I think uh, I'm certainly seeing a trend. I mean, it's big in America It's getting bigger here is testosterone replacement companies um, that are consumer driven. Yeah. Right. And, and what we're seeing is that younger and younger men are requesting testosterone replacement and they don't get that that will drive down their sperm count. Mm. Right. Because when you replace the testosterone, the body gets the signal like for an endocrine disruptor. It is an endocrine disruptor. That's what testosterone replacement is in a way. And, and so the body gets the message, oh, good to go. Don't make it need to make that anymore. And sperm count goes down. Yeah. So, um, you know, it's it's really tricky. But the but look, the fact that men are requesting this, they're requesting more Viagra right? Mm -hmm. Their request, their, their, their problem. There's a study from China of men who make BPA. Okay. And those men had significantly more problems with erectile dysfunction than other workers. And in, in our women that we study, we asked them about their sexual satisfaction and their levels of phthalates were directly related to their sexual satisfaction. So what we hear, you know, when we hear from China and Japan and Singapore, uh, as you might've read that people are less, less interested in getting married. They're less interested in having sex actually. And I think that this is one of the um, things we're seeing as a consequence of these, of these chemicals, but it's one that's not talked about. No one is gonna go to a cocktail party and say, Ah, uh, you know, I had to go to the doctor and get this, you know, <laughs> drug. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> no, or I had my sperm counter and it was low. No, they won't talk about that. Even though they might talk about their high cholesterol or their high blood pressure, you know, say, oh, I'm taking care of that, you know. But the whole sexual thing is in the closet. And I'm not just talking about, obviously, the LGBTQ, uh, the problems that people are having with sex and with procreation is not discussed. And I think part of what I'm trying to do with this um, campaign, the book and the campaign is to make it okay for people to talk about it. And yeah. that's coming out, that's happening actually. A lot of podcasts and, and Instagram live discussions where people are being pretty open about their, their problems, even you know moderators and so on. So I think it's a good thing. Yeah, absolutely. I think, um, you know, it's easy to explain away uh, saying, you know, Gen Z not being interested in sex is because we have all these other distractions like social media or, you know, a whole bunch of other things. But it's definitely a pragmatic conversation that we need to be having. Um, do, do we have any evidence about how this is impacting uh, genitalia uh, and the prevalence of um, sexual uh, development issues uh, in, in younger ages? Yeah, um, so affecting genitalia 
is a whole different question that maybe we haven't really touched on it. I'd love to, but we're maybe running out of time. So yeah, yeah. Let me just go to the, this question. So um, in animals, environmental chemicals can cause ambiguous genitalia. Mm-hmm. So they can cause it can cause animals that have what's known in humans as disorders of sexual development. So ambiguous genitalia, maybe that's might be a very small penis or fused labia or th- something like that, or mm-hmm. even eggs and you know testes in the same individual. So that's very very rare, and that's not usually what people worry about. Um, sort of the next level is um, or another level of this question is um, who you want to have sex with, um, the homosexuality. And, and this is, boy, this is a loaded one, isn't it? Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. But um, in animals, in fish, in frogs, um, in some birds, and you know, there, you can cause uh, animals to choose to have sex with their own sex. Okay. However, this does not mean that this is what's driving a man or a woman to be homosexual. Mm -hmm. There are genes now that have been identified and um, whether there's a gene environment interaction, I don't know. And that's something that needs to be studied. Mm -hmm. But, um, But the big question and the big elephant in the room, if you will, is what everyone is wondering about. And we hear about this every day about another person who comes out as trans. Um, is, this, is this the result of chemicals? And that's the most common question I get actually. <laughs> really, is it? Oh, yeah, wow. yeah. Um, and um, because it's so much in our faces, you know, we're, we're, we're dealing with it all the time right now. Um, so does that mean there's more of it? We don't know. We don't know actually that there's more of it because who who could talk before? I just read in the New Yorker about um, a musician who spent his whole life, his name was Tipton, his whole life as a man and his family didn't know mm. that he had been, he was a natal female. Mm. And he was, that was in the thirties, wow. right? But it's yeah. coming out. So, yeah. so, so we don't really know how prevalent this was, but certainly there's more buzz about it. There's more talk about it. There's more, you know, treatments for it now, which didn't exist before. Mm-hmm. So it's very possible there's more of it, but I can't, as a scientist, I can't say there's more of it when I don't have a comparison, right? Exactly. Yeah, it's 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 almost impossible to see whether the incidents or the prevalence of um, homosexuality uh, uh, intersex has actually gone up or down over the last 50, 40, 50 years. Um, I, I guess, you know, in, in the book, you have a very clear perspective about how this more inclusive and non-binary society is something to be celebrated. Um, but it is one of those uh, pragmatic conversations, uncomfortable conversations we need to have about whether the environment is in some point or so in, in some way driving, uh, the, you know, w- what appears to be uh, an increased number of, um, of people identifying. So, you know, the way we answer questions like that, mm. um, you know, is there more 
X in the population, you know, uh, due to Y, right? So that's what we're really asking, you know, is X, say gender blurring, let's just call it that, mm-hmm. increased because of Y chemicals in the environment, okay? So if we wanted to answer that, I know how to answer that, but not in practice, because to do that, because this phenomenon of gender blurring is relatively rare, actually extremely rare on a population basis. We don't know the percent, but it's going to be in the fraction of a percent probably. Um, The size of the population you have to study is enormous, Mm. right? So if if you're studying the, you know, the the prevalence of miscarriage, that's easy, right? (laughs) You know, 12% clinical, 33% subclinical, you know, big numbers. You don't need huge studies, but you have something that this rare, you're going to have to have a huge study. And then if you think that prenatal environment matters, which is what I think, because that's what drives reproductive development, then you have to have urine from all these thousands of women, right? Mm. And you have to have it stored. And then you have to find the offspring and they have to talk to you and they have to talk to you about their gender choice. Think about how hard that study is. Yeah. Yeah. So maybe sometime in the future that'll be done, but um, it's right now a question that we can't answer. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, Dr. Swan, I have to say, um, your book is incredible. Uh, I hope everyone listening to this gets a copy. I'm gonna make sure I shout about it because it's uh, a, a difficult and scary topic and I commend you for being really, uh, you know, um, vocal about it um and uh thank you for all the work that you've done thus far as well it's it's incredible well thank you so much Ruby. a scary podcast i know but i really hope you enjoyed listening to dr swan i do hope you get her book do sign up for the doctorskitchen.com and you can find the links to a number of different things have you ever googled your own name Prepare for a shock because your personal info, including addresses and phone numbers, is all out there. It's all harvested by data brokers and sold legally. Aura is a personal digital security service that scans the internet for your sensitive information and provides a full suite of privacy-enhancing tools. For a limited time, Aura is offering listeners a 14-day free trial at Aura.com safety. That's A-U-R-A dot safety to learn more and activate the 14-day trial period. Do you ever feel like money is just flying out of your account and you have no idea where it's going? Well, I know it's all of those subscriptions. I used Rocket Money to help me find out what subscriptions I'm actually spending money on and I had them cancel the ones I didn't want anymore. Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps lower your bills. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has helped save its members an average of $720 a year with over $500 million in canceled subscriptions. Stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash pod24. That's rocketmoney.com slash pod24. Rocketmoney.com slash pod24. That we refer to including the papers, books, and other organizations, including the Endocrine Society, EWG.org, and Silent Spring, where you can find out ways to reduce your chemical burden. I'll be sharing those on my newsletter over the coming weeks as well. I hope you have a fantastic day, and I'll see you here next time. <laughs>